Well, that prayer, in a sense, reflects something of, I guess, this letter. We're working through 1 Peter, and uh, we're looking at the message of the gospel that came to a group of people who were grabbed by it, who were compelled by the message, and whose lives were completely reorientated. But in another sense, uh, it's not just uh, this letter uh, that... um, sits with the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, at its very core. You could almost say, if you've seen, I'm sure, um, maybe you've um, tried a download program, and you've, it's on trial, and everything that you print out, uh, it prints a watermark in the background, and that watermark kind of, you can't go with that watermark, you've got to buy the program. Uh, you've probably seen that kind of thing or you've seen a watermark on the back of paper and it's constantly there on every page that you look at reminding you of something. In a sense, you could say that the whole of the New Testament is written with the watermark of Jesus Christ and the events of his life, death, resurrection and ascension at its very core. That is there. It's, it's on every page in some sense. And it's important that when we come to a section like this, which looks at very much the conduct of life, that we bear that in mind, that we always read the page with the watermark of the cross sitting behind it all the time. And the reason for that is because if we don't, we are in real danger of of ending up in a kind of legal, structured, set of rules kind of way of thinking a kind of an observance of a pattern of life, which, to be honest, a good pattern of life we could take from all sorts of different places. We could take it from uh, pretty much every religion in the world, uh, espouses the idea of a good pattern of life. We we could take it from atheistic, humanistic perspectives, which expose... Uh, a good pattern of life, all of those different ways of considering how we should conduct our lives would all result in us thinking about living in a good, appropriate way towards each other. The difference that we see when we come to this kind of section in the Bible is it is written on the watermarked page of Jesus. And that has profound, it changes. It's as though that is the reason behind everything that we do. Um, As we work through that, we're going to think about that, and then we're going to come back to that idea when we get to the end. And we're thinking this afternoon about uh, the pursuit of peace. The back end of the reading that we've got, these first um, eight, verse 8 to 12, we're going to be looking at. uh, Verse 10, 11, and 12 Peter is um, uh, reading or rewriting uh, a section from Psalm 34. So when uh, this was read in that church gathering, when it was first received uh, in those various churches and uh, people stood up and read this letter as as the, uh, the message for the day or as they gathered together and they heard it read, as soon as they come to verse 10, 11, and 12, it would straight away have been familiar language. They would have recognized it straight away from their Jewish background. They would have seen it as one of the Psalms that they'd been brought up on all along. And, and Peter uses 10, 11, and 12 as a kind of uh, a recognition. In fact, Psalm 34 appears all over the place 
in 1 Peter. It's, an ama- it's amazing the way Peter, he doesn't uh, teach the psalm, he just drops it in in different places, reinforcing, recommitting the ideas that he's bringing to his congregation. And what a sense, in a sense he's saying is he's giving, I suppose, people from a Jewish heritage or Jewish background, he's giving them the confidence, isn't he, that the message of Jesus is actually rooted in everything that you've already believed. Uh, That's really important, isn't it? Can you imagine that you've heard this message of Jesus and it seems so incredible, so amazing? One of the things that stops you becoming disorientated and feeling as if you're losing all of your Jewish heritage, as these first hearers might have felt, is the reminder that this is the fulfillment of everything that has been promised. Uh, And as a result of this fulfillment of everything that has been promised, there is therefore the pursuit of peace. Verse 11, we see there, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. I've taken that, the pursuit of peace, as the title for this this afternoon. Um, All sorts of different ways that we pursue peace. Words count, don't they? Words count. For those of you who are studying, I didn't uh, give you the horror, the horror phrase there, word count. It's got an S on the end. It's words count. They, they mean something. They're important. And words can do uh, an incredible amount of damage. And we can use words amazingly uh, without realizing it foolishly. There's been so many occasions in our social media-dominated uh, world where uh, words have been um, incredibly used in a way which is breathtaking. There's a woman called Justine Sacco, who a few years ago, she was, um, she was uh, traveling all over the world. She was a PR executive, and uh, she was traveling over the, all over the world, and uh, she, made, she decided to tweet out to her 171 followers... That is not many, 171 followers, uh, ironic jokes about her travels. Uh, She was leaving London, traveling to um, Africa, and she tweeted out an ironic joke. During her long flight to Africa, that tweet to 171 followers went viral. Hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, ultimately millions of people, picking up on what was an ironic joke to a limited number of people, and her life was completely crushed by what she put in a tiny little tweet. 150 characters, I think it is, or maybe it's 140, can't quite remember, on Twitter. You can't say much but you can say enough to completely reshape your life. One little tweet which went absolutely, catastrophically viral. It's amazing. In another sense, one of the things that we see in that is it reminds us of our tendency as human beings and something which, I guess, over the centuries, pretty much every civilization has used the concept of shame on the wrongdoer as being a way of of ordering and controlling and managing and governing society. 
to be pilloried or to be uh, finally found guilty of a misdemeanor in the past, right up until I think it was about 1820, something like that, to be pilloried was to be placed in a very public location uh, and to be uh, kind of like the stocks uh, and you would be um, recognized as somebody who has done something wrong. Somebody wrote about it in this way. On discovering that a pillory was occupied, that's the, the place is the pillory, on discovering that a pillory was occupied, people would excitedly gather in the marketplace to taunt, tease, and laugh at the offender on display. That's the way it worked. Some of the pillories occupied and shops would empty. Workshops would stop doing the job that they're doing and the whole of the town would be out and would be ridiculing and uh, chucking all sorts of junk and rubbish. Uh, Rotten vegetables would be literally rotten fruit. Rotten vegetables would literally be collected in front of the pillory, ready for it to be occupied. Dead animals would be gathered and collected. Small dead animals. It would be difficult to throw a cow. But small dead animals would be collected and would literally be thrown at people who were in the pillory. It was a horrific uh, experience. Uh, people would be, um, would be found guilty and, uh, and their punishment would be a set period of time in the pillory. Having said that, it would be literally hours, an hour or two hours, maybe three hours. It wouldn't be a long period of time. But it would be sufficient for their name, for their uh, character, for who they are, to be from there on in recognized as somebody who we should see as shameful, somebody to be disregarded and hated. Uh, I guess in a sense... We might not have pillories anymore, uh, but the idea of the mass population turning and despising somebody is all over those kind of viral responses in Twitter, isn't it? All over it. Lives destroyed. People who can literally, from there on in, no longer get a job. I mean, literally no longer get a job. People who within within weeks are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what they've experienced. People whose lives, family relationships are absolutely crushed. We have written into us a desire to see the wrongdoer exposed and ridiculed and shame is the way in which culturally the mass population tends to do it. At the end of the war in France... Uh, women who had uh, fraternized with the Nazi occupiers had their uh, heads shaven. They were branded with swastika on their face uh, and they were caused to walk through the cities barefoot. It's what we do as a mass populace. Shame is a strong means. There was an article in the New York Times which followed over a period of around about eight to ten months various interviews with Justin Sacco, just following on from her life post the fateful tweet. I guess one of the things that came out in in that interview was this, that when we consider 
justice or the mass justice or the mass population's shame response, it might on occasions even be justified in the sense that the wrongdoer has done wrong, but it is totally devoid of any sense of grace. There is no grace. There is no way for the perpetrator of wrong to get any sense of redemption. There is no way for the mass population to move on and to redeem and to build and to love and to bring compassion. That's it. We pillory and then we move on to the next pillory and the next pillory and the next pillory. And let's be honest, it, doesn't, it isn't limited to the multi-million global viral tweets, is it? We all know that we have seen it in family life. We have seen it in the workplace. We have seen it in the street where we live. We have seen it amongst social groups that we are part of. What is that saying? It's saying that these events expose something of our hearts. It exposes something of who we are. And what we see, I would trust, as we come to the message of Jesus, is at least this, as we see the implications of His life, death, resurrection and ascension worked out in in the subsequent letters and particularly in this letter, we see this confronting us that the way we by nature live is not an acceptable way for us to continue to live. That words are the tap of our hearts. Yes, they are. When we open the tap, what pours out is not unthought through words but actually responses of our heart. It's who we are inside. Jesus made it really clear. The problem is not on the outside. The problem is not Twitter. The problem is not out there. The problem is on the inside. It's what pours out of our hearts. James said, talks about the issue of our heart, of our tongue. Uh, I would describe it in, in our kind of way of thinking that the, the words are the tap of our hearts. We open the tap and words pour out, but it exposes the inner me. And the message of the gospel is this, quite simply. Yes, grace. That's great news. Grace. But the response to grace is is change. That we are no longer what we once were. We change. That's what Peter is saying to these individuals who are receiving this letter. Now what we've seen in the previous few sections is Peter has responded to a a kind of a funnel, uh, an ever decreasing uh, and yet intensifying level of social connection. So on the big wide picture at the top, he's connected with the empire. Then he connects with the workplace. Then he connects with that really close family relationship network, uh, wives, husbands. And now we come to this little section, verse 8 to verse 12, really kind of rounds off 
this how should I respond section and he takes it out again it's as though he brings it really tightly in to the closest of relationships and now he expands it out and he expands it out to whom to the church to people who are listening look at what he says finally all of you that that's that's the church not in one sense, it's all of the church, everywhere, because this is God's Word, which is being kept. But for that little gathering that were meeting in that particular place when they first heard it, and it was read out, finally all of you. Who was the you that was being thought about as the person stood at the front, read it? Who was the you? It's you. I guess, in a sense, we would really say that whoever reads God's Word in this particular way should have a little mirror just sat right in front of them. So that when we say the you, it immediately reminds us that I'm speaking back at me. It's all of us. So he, sat, he said, right, society, work, family. Now what about this family? How does this respond? We're going to look at that. We're going to see that the, firstly, that there are two responses. We're going to look at the responses. And then we're going to just think at the close of this, five reasons why we're sat on the watermark of the message of Jesus. So firstly, the two. First one is what I would describe as a passive response or a character response or a a person response look at what he says finally all of you be like-minded be sympathetic love one another be compassionate and humble he's saying be this this is how you are to be now of course what you are in terms of what you are to be, inevitably has an outcome, doesn't it? To be compassionate means nothing unless you are compassionate in the outpouring of who you now are. But you are, first and foremost, you are to be that. If I am compassionate, if I am that, My actions will, by very nature, they'll result in being compassionate. But I start by being something. That's who I am. It's it's a passive response in one sense. But it was also absolutely dynamite. It was just ridiculous. We look at this now. And we would say, well, of course, that's how we should be. We have, a bit like the New York Times with the Justin Sacco article, we have a, an instant kind of response that says, that, that's how I want to be. We want to be the kind of person that exhibits this kindness, compassion, sympathetic love to one another. Uh, and for all of us to be like that, be like-minded, Uh, We can only spend today on this. Once again, this is another little section. To be honest, you could spend a month on each of these little phrases that are used, but we won't. 
but it was mind-blowing. Listen to this um, description of the Greco-Roman world. In the highly competitive, stratified Greco-Roman world, only those, uh, only those of degraded identity were humble. I'll say that again. In the highly competitive, stratified Greco-Roman world, only those of degraded person were humble. In other words, in the world that this first came to, the last thing, the last thing that you aimed to be was humble. You just didn't be that. That was, that was poor show. That was not acceptable. We immediately think of a person like that and we lean towards them in one sense. We think it's a, it's a character trait of value and virtue. In the Greco-Roman world, unless you were bottom of the pile, unless you were a humbled person, you would never be humble. You see the difference? If you were a person who had been humbled, then you were humble. You weren't humble because you were that inside. You were humble because you'd been humbled. Because you were a slave of the lowest order. Do you remember the stratas of slaves we looked at? a few weeks ago. If you're down there, then you're humbled. And you are humble as a result of where you are. But you didn't do that if you were anybody else. Humility, we read on, was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame. An inability to defend one's honor. That's fascinating, isn't it? I think we live in a society, don't we, which has a kind of a strange response to a demand to live in this way. On the one hand, we love it. But on another hand, in all sorts of ways, we want to defend our honor. We want to be somebody. We don't want to be a humble person. We want to be a person who's recognized, who's got cred, who's got respect, who's seen, who's identified, who's valued, who's looked up to. And then at the same time, we say, oh, and by the way, I want to be a humble person. At least the Greco-Roman world were honest. At least they said, don't be a humble person. You've got to fight for your dignity. You've got to exalt your name. At least they were honest. We live in a kind of corrupted way of thinking where we say, oh, it's really good to be humble really great to be humble, but by the way, I want to make sure that I, I, I kind of maintain my dignity and my honor, and my name is everything, and I want people to respect me. Do you see the implications? This isn't some kind of isolated, hypothetical, theological argument that Peter is raising. He's saying this is day-to-day -day living. What kind of attitude are you going to exhibit as a result of who you say you are. It's incredible, isn't it? When we think about the implications of this. So that's the first response. That's passive. He goes on to say, do, 
or do not in this case. This is the active. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Don't do that. Evil for evil. Somebody does something, somebody says something, instant response is to do it back. That's only fair, isn't it? It kind of redresses the balance. It defends my honor. It maintains that I am somebody. And once again, I would say, wouldn't you, that social media is the, is the tap of our, 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 our hearts. It's the, it's the place where we most quickly see that instant response. We are so guarded face to face. You know when we're kind of speaking to somebody face to face and we, we, somebody says something or we find out something, we tend to be a little bit kind of, oh, hold back a minute. Uh, well, some people do. Uh, some people tend to be a little bit even more. You know, you say something and the first thing you feel as a result of that is uh, four knuckles kind of reshaping your lip. But apart from that, uh, we tend to be reserved, but we tend not to be so reserved in the written word, do we, in social media. We tend to open our hearts really quickly. We, we tend to respond, uh, and we tend to see what really is deep in there. And Peter is saying, don't do that. He's saying, do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. It's a res- reversal of what we expect to defend our honor. And then he goes on to say, he doesn't say, don't do anything. You see that? He does not say, don't do anything. He says, respond not in a neutral way. He firstly said, don't respond in a negative way. He said, don't respond in a... He's not saying don't respond respond in a neutral way. He's saying respond in a positive way. Repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. See what he's saying? He's saying that your, your response because of who you are before we drift into the idea that somehow we get some sort of payback for everything we do, what he's essentially saying is that your response is because you have received and will receive a blessing. Therefore, you respond with blessing. That is essential. Uh, and, And I find it fascinating that he says it to the church. He says it to the church. What's your response? What's your response when somebody said something? When somebody's done something? When somebody's attitude to you is not good? When it is evil? When it is insulting? What is your response? What is my response? Peter says really clearly, no punches pulled, Your response is not to act neutrally. Your response is to bless them. To bless the person who has offended you. You say, why would you possibly ever do that? Somebody said something to me. I would suggest that in the church context, that is how we really change, isn't it? 
That's how we really effect change in each other. When our response is not to insult back, not to respond back negatively, but to respond with love and compassion and long-suffering and all of the kind of be traits that he's already mentioned. He said, be, says, be this, and therefore make your action, do this. <laughs> because that's how we change. We begin to understand little by little that my response in that negative way is not how I should be. I need you, and you need me, I need you more, <laughs> to, 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 to love me so that my negative responses get kicked into shape. So that my negative responses get reshaped. So I'm constantly observing in everything that I say and I do, when I think negatively, when I think use words inappropriately, every time I hear and say that and I receive back love, I get changed a little bit more. I get reshaped a little bit more. And you need that from me and you need that from each other because Peter is saying I'm writing to the church and all of you need to be changed it's powerful stuff isn't it it's no holds barred he's saying living in church life is is going to be filled like likely is going to be filled with all sorts of occasions when people offend you and people insult you that, that's, that's, what, that's what it's going to be like. Maybe you're just kind of beginning to get used to coming along. We are so delighted that you're beginning to find uh, a home with us. But I want to be really upfront from day one and say, don't expect the church to be a little oasis where everybody is lovely and everybody is kind all the time. Because that will not be the case. We are messed up people. We are people who are marked with rebellion against God. We do all of the things that we should not do and we will fail. And as a result of that, every time we fail, we don't look any more than at the person who is failing us. We remind ourselves this is written on the watermark of the message of Jesus. I look through that person and I see behind them Jesus, who never once failed, who never once insulted. He, of course, Jesus at many times confronted, absolutely, but he confronted with justice and righteousness and goodness, and he would never fail. And that we're all becoming like him. We're not creating a kind of holy huddle that all becomes conformed to each other. We're being conformed to Him, the one who is perfected. So there is a, a passive response and there is an active response. Finally, we see five things. I'm going to really quickly. Why is this written on the watermarked page of the, of the life of Jesus? Firstly, because pursuing peace is a statement of Jesus' lordship. Why do we want to pursue peace? Because he says so. Because he says so. Because I have determined by believing in Jesus that he is not just my Savior, he is my Lord. He is the King 
and champion and guide and authority in my life. And therefore, pursuing peace is not an option. We haven't got to, we haven't got to weigh this up and decide, shall I? No. This is a demand because it is written on the watermarked page of the life of Jesus. To pursue peace is a statement of his lordship. Secondly, to pursue peace is to be humble, or to be humble, secondly, to be humble, is a recognition of the glory of God. If we don't want to be humble, we're actually saying, I don't want to be like Jesus. And how did he live? He came into this world and lived a humble life. The letter that Paul writes to the Philippines said he left all of his glory, everything that he had in heaven, everything that was astounding and amazing, and it was not belittling for him to humble himself. It was triumphant and it was glorious for him to humble himself so that he might be a saviour of the world. And so it is a recognition of the very glory of Jesus that he did humble himself. And therefore it is nothing for me, therefore, to humble myself in the pattern of his life. So number two, to be, hum- to be humble is a recognition of the glory of God. Number three, to seek the blessing of others is an enactment of the kingdom of Jesus. What did Jesus come and do? He came into a world where John says he came to his own and his own did not receive him people who should have listened to him. What did he do while he was with people who were not listening to him? He blessed them. He poured out blessing. He he healed them. He fed them. He showed compassion. He taught them. He raised them from the dead. (laughs) What did he do? He poured out blessing. Why? Because this is the kingdom of Jesus come into the world. This is what the kingdom is going to look like. It's going to be a kingdom which is just filled with blessing. Every every turn we make in the eternal heaven is going to be face to face with another person who is seeking to bless me. And every turn that I make is another step where I'm seeking to bless somebody else. Because that is what a glorious, amazing coming of the kingdom of Jesus is all about. And therefore, to bless others is a little step. It's like an hors d'oeuvre of what it's going to be. It's going to be a bit like this. That's what Jesus said time and time again about the kingdom. And therefore, my demand, my response is to bless others because that is enacting the kingdom of Jesus. That's third. Number four. A desire to... Got, a desire, to desire... I'll start that again. To desire a God-shaped life is a statement of love towards him. Just so that we don't get confused and think it's all about kind of demanding obedience, wanting to be like Jesus is a statement that we love him. We love the things that people who we love, love. We don't start by loving them. I'll, well, let me put it this way. My wife's on a kind of a journey. It's been a 26-year journey, reinforced with three sons. 
she more than tolerates footy now. She's, she's kind of loving what we love. And I am pathetic at all of the changes that I need to make. <laughs> you know that kind of the excitement of uh, one of those shabby chic shops? I said that without stuttering. The shabby chic shop. I, can't, I really work hard to try to love them. I am, I am a failing rebel in that way. But we love the things that someone loves. Jesus loves a life shaped like this. Five, finally. To sacrifice self is a cross-shaped life. I'll say it again. If you forget everything else, keep a hold of this one. To sacrifice self is a cross-shaped life. Jesus said it, to take up your cross. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's it. To sacrifice self is a cross-shaped life. Humility, listen to this point. Humility is not a low view of self. It is a high view of God. Don't think that humility is some sort of beat myself into a psychological pulp of woe is me. That is not humility. Humility is a recognition of who God is and how distant He is to me. Therefore, my only response is humility. But His life is what? His life is to be pilloried. Who's the ultimate pillorying, if you can have such a word? Jesus on the cross. What happened when Jesus was held up on the cross? They walked past him and they ridiculed him. They pilloried him as he was breathing his last. For what? So that I might be considered to be in him. I heard this week, and this is the final statement of the cross-shaped life. To say that our sins are taken by Jesus on the cross is kind of true. It is true, but it's something else. When we say that we are in Christ, it's as though we are there. In Christ... We are crucified. In Christ, we are crucified. In Christ, we are pilloried. In Christ, we are abused. In Christ, we are ripped from the cross and buried in a tomb. And in Christ, we live again. And therefore, to live the cross-shaped life is our ultimate hope.